0: If you would stand with me as we come to God's word, we'll be finishing 1 John chapter 2 this morning and two short verses with lots to say to the question of, for the Christian, how then should we live? How should we live in this day? So these two verses, John writes, God speaks. And now, little children, Abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Please be seated. God's holy, perfect word for us this day. You may have heard the phrase, begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. And that shows up throughout culture, throughout lives, throughout different stages of life. Whether it's the young toddler who's dreaming of one day being Superman and going around in those little tights or Spider-Man and playing and in, in, in dreaming with that end in mind that's affecting how he's living and playing now until he has to go off to school and it wouldn't be too cool to be going around in those tights anymore. Or to the young athlete who with the end in mind of winning the state championship, dreams, closes his eyes and visualizes dreams of making those foul shots, time elapsed, swishing them to win the state championship. The end in mind affects how he practices. Now, to the college student, With that goal of a certain job affecting your major, your classes that you take now. That end in mind affects what you choose, how you live today. To the mature Christian who in this passage, the end goal, one day appearing before the Lord Jesus Christ, should and uh, uh, really must affect how we live today. Whether it's somebody like the Apostle Paul or John who are longing for that day of appearing before Christ or maybe the average person who's just caught up in the things of this world as we were warned about uh, a few sermons ago about the lust of the eyes and the flesh and so forth and getting caught up in worldly things, there's that danger. That person will appear before Christ just the same. To the person who literally denies there is no God. There's nothing after death. They will appear before Christ as well. So our message this morning is very, very simple in the sense that we could call it the ABCs. You have the, the outline there in your bulletin. The point is, the A is, a Christian abides in Christ and has a B, behavior that reflects Christ, landing in a C, confidence. Before Christ at that judgment day, at his second coming. So first, abiding in Christ. Okay, That's one of the few commands in this book, abide in Christ, so we want to pay attention to it. But how do you do that? How do you, how do I abide in Christ? And we'll say there there are essentially three things that we'll highlight there. The first is there's an aspect of abiding that that we'll call faithfulness, faith. And Adam hit that one very well last week about the resting, believing, trusting, abiding in Christ. And he gave that challenge to say, are we raising, say, children so that then when they leave home, have they really owned their faith that they're going to abide in Christ with that faith? That will sustain and continue. Will that go on? So the faithfulness aspect of abiding, abiding is crucial. But we're gonna talk a bit more about two others that relate to this passage. One of them is a relational aspect of abiding. And here's, here's where I'm going with that is that, and, and I've wrestled with this personally this week because you may have heard me say before everyone is either a type A person. Or they need to be converted to be a type A person. You're just waiting if you're not there yet, okay? Because our culture, it lives and breathes that. You've got to get things done. The train's going, and if you're not on it, too bad you miss it. There's all kinds of things that need to get done. And technology, technology is both a blessing and a curse to that. In corporate emo- America, your boss, because of all the technologies out there, yeah, you got more free time because technology can take full care of it. So now with that free time, you can get more done. Okay. Yeah, corporate America will talk about a work-life balance, but you figure that out where you're going to get the balance because you've got to get things done. Even with our children, we have such a fear of wasting time. That young child better know Latin and Spanish and be acing the SAT by the time they're 13, They bet, and if they're not, you better get them a tutor, and they better play a couple of instruments, and they better play at least two sports, a spring and fall, so that they can be well-rounded, and if you don't have all that going, you're missing the train there too. And the reason you're so stressed about getting all these things done, you just need better time management, okay? In order to have some free time, in order to fill that free time, with the free time you just created with all that stuff. You just go in a vicious cycle. So what we end up with is all these things that we're seeking to juggle, what, what Pastor Mark Dever calls the cult of options. We feel like we've got to have all these things, and then we don't really commit to anything. We end up with all those balls juggling, and then you can't keep them all going. This one will fall, that one will fall, but... Hey, somebody else will pick it up. Just throw it in their lap. And the only thing you end up committed to is really yourself. So we need to realize the benefit of committing to something. Okay? Now, in, 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 in Britain, uh, in, in the UK, across the pond, it's said there that the academic subjects, by the time you're 16, you're limited to three. Okay, so they they say, hey, let's get away from all these juggling balls. Focus in three subjects. So that helps, in a sense, to provide freedom because you're committed to fewer things. Okay? Maybe that's helpful. Okay? But my point here isn't to give a practical sermon around time management. The point is there is one best option. And that's what John is saying here. Abide in him, one best thing. Jesus said that to Mary and Martha, we can ask them, the one best thing. So in in contrast, the doing and doing and all that stuff, here's a challenge that the, the, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard gave many years ago. And at first hearing it, I admit, I said, that can't be right. That sounds awful. Here's what he said. Far from idleness being the root of all evil, it is rather the only true good. Idleness, the only true good. What we just went through Proverbs in D and Sunday school classes, and we were warned about the sluggard, the lazy guy. Right. So here's the point. He's not saying to be lazy. The sluggard's, in a sense, the guy who's just choosing, I'll sit on the couch, hit the clicker, just zone out, not paying attention to anything. That's, that's laziness. Idleness that Kierkegaard is talking about is actually a, a, a fruitful ground where you're avoiding the busyness of just doing a bunch of things and you're focusing in on what's essential. In this case, abiding in Christ, meditating, meditating, Thinking, praying, contemplating the good that's in Christ. And this is not rocket science. This is in very much in, in place calling us back to just literally time with God. Okay? Nice and simple. 46 times in 1 John, 105 verses, 46 verses mention love. Love over and over. You can't effectively love well, no matter what your love language is, without spending some time with the person that you love. So abiding in Christ involves spending time with Christ. And so much of the Christian life is about the simple, the mundane, the day-to-day abiding in Christ. And you think about it, literally in Redeemer here, young woman If you want help, you're likely to go to the older woman, maybe that you know in the congregation, who's abiding in Christ because if you ask them to pray for you, you know she'll do it because she's abiding in Christ. She has a relationship with Christ. She will pray for you. Or the young man who needs advice. You go to that other Christian that you see abiding In Christ. And when you ask for advice, you know they'll listen, they'll hear, they'll give you godly counsel because they have a relationship of abiding in Christ. So we see that challenge that abiding in Christ means relationship. There's also another point, we'll call it an ethical point. And the simple one being this when Jesus says, If you love me, you keep my commandments. So there's a life change. That comes about from abiding in Christ. And we see that in 1 John, where it says, If God is light, you walk in the light. Keep his commandments. Love the brothers, don't love the world. All of these show righteousness. Okay, and that takes us to our second point, and that is this the A, abiding in Christ, leads to a B, a behavior that reflects Christ. So, encourage you, look, look in the passage. Chapter 2, verse 29 says this. If you know or perceive or are sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Because I hear that last part again. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, you might think, whoops, that sounds a little bit backwards, right? We would tend to say, Everyone who is born of him practices righteousness, okay? And you could probably say that's true scripturally, but that's not what he's saying here. You'll find it elsewhere. He's saying something different here, okay? He's, in, 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 when he's, he's basically saying all who practice righteousness are born of him, okay? The, what you call the converse isn't necessarily true. Like if you think of all dogs are cats, that doesn't mean all cats are dogs. He's saying something specific here, and what is he getting at? What is he getting at? He's saying, if you see people, men, women, who are truly living a righteous life, you can be sure they are born of God, okay? If you see somebody living a truly righteous life, they are born of God. So what about this? You could go further with that, and here's where we want to think through this. You can only do a truly good work if you are a Christian, true or false. You can only do a good work if you're a Christian. Hmm. Let's think through that. Now, a couple clarifications, all right? And I realize as we go through this, you might get mad at me. Come talk to me afterwards. Send me an email. Just don't don't go just away mad. If I step on feet, we're going to look at what Scripture says. We're going to look through what the confession, the Westminster Confession says about this, which is based on Scripture. But a couple clarifications, all right? Righteousness in this context does not mean just morality, okay? There are plenty of people who are decent and moral and so forth and aren't righteous, what we're talking about here. So, in other words, the, 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 the proverbial walking uh, the older lady across the street. The funny thing is, I literally had an older lady ask me to walk across the street yesterday. Yeah, that, that happens still, right? Yes. Okay. Then you, then you start, well, is that a good deed and all this stuff? Okay. Let's think through this. You can do things that are moral and decent. That doesn't necessarily mean righteous. Here's what the confession says, and you, you have this in your notes, some points A good work, what is a good work? A good work is one that is only as commanded in God's word. If something is good, it's good because God says so. He determines that. I had a friend, a roommate in graduate school, my buddy Mark. Um, He would pray. He would say, Lord, I pray that you would do something good for so-and-so as you define good. Lord, I pray that this would be a good day, as you define good. Because he was submitting to realization that God is the one who determines what's good. And my dear brother, he died just a month ago of brain cancer. And his wife told me, he said, she said his last words were, praise God, praise God. He got God's Goodness, that God defines what is good, even in the midst of Him suffering. People would come and visit, and He would say, God is good. He got it. The second point good works are done in obedience to God's commandments. They flow out of the relationship, out of the relationship of the Holy Spirit abiding in them and them wanting because of that relationship. To please God. It gives them what John talks about more and more as the book is going to go on. Assurance. I am mine. He is. I am thine. He is. He, I'm getting that all messed up. I'm yours. You're mine. There we go. Take out the thighs and these. I can't get them right like Adam can. So there's a relationship there. Okay. And it encourages others. Third point. Big one. Come holy from the spirit of Christ, They come from the spirit of Christ in the Christian. So the, that person's ability to do something good is not of themselves. It's the spirit in them. Now, here's something uh, uh, interesting, humorous, and even foreshadowing in the confession. Here's what it said about this. It said, Yet... Christians are not to grow negligent as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. So you've heard that annoying term of Reformed folks, that they are the frozen chosen, in the sense that, well, you just sit there, and if the Holy Spirit isn't getting me to do it, I'm not going to do it. I'm supposed to love this person, but I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to sit there. The confession saw that coming. It says, you don't get to sit there and wait for a special motion of the Spirit. You ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God. So amazing thing, it's saying you are supposed to love your spouse. You're supposed to love this person. You don't feel like it, still go do it. And when you're doing it, it's ultimately the Holy Spirit doing it in and through you. Beautiful mix of human responsibility and God's sovereignty, okay? Ultimately, it's coming from the Spirit of Christ in the believer to do the good work. Now, those good works, lest we mess up, they cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin They don't balance out even one little sin. They can't take care of it. They can't give us eternal life. They can't earn us anything. Amen to that. It's by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. The good works are super important, but they don't get us even that far into heaven. It's by Christ alone. God looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept them. Here's some huge encouragement. This, how often do you do something, as a believer, you do something that's good, but yet you wrestle with, I, I, I want that for the glory of God, because I'm a Christian, I want to honor God, but I realize that wasn't 100%. For the glory of God, does that mean throw it away, not a good work? No. The beautiful thing is God realizes his children, this side of glory, still stained with sin. It won't be perfect. That good thing that you did for your wife, you wanted to honor God, but you also didn't want her to be mad at you. You wanted her to thank you. That kind of thing. God doesn't say, throw that one away. Okay. God, looking upon that sees his son, his spirit working in and through it, is pleased to accept that good work. Be encouraged. Be encouraged for the believer, for the unbeliever. Though they do things which God commands, cannot, underline, bold, cannot please God. So, practically speaking, at the soup kitchen, unbeliever Serving, 10 plates of food. Believer, 10 plates of food. Is there a difference in that? From a utilitarian standpoint, 10 people fed, 10 people fed, that's good in one sense of good. But from the biblical standpoint of righteousness, they are not the same biblically. Why? Because one person's doing it because they've got Christ in them. The other person is not doing it because they have Christ in them. It can't be a good work. Somebody who's not a believer in Christ cannot do what's good because they're not of God. It's it's, it's that simple. God says so. If a non-Christian could truly do a good work, then they could do enough good works that they don't need Jesus. And we know... There's no heaven apart from Christ. Only the Christian can do a good work, can be righteous in the biblical sense because they have Christ in them. Amen? The good news is this is pointing to Christ. If, if it makes us mad in the sense that, well, wait, I, don't, I want credit for the good work. I want credit for the good work. No. The good news is it points us to Christ. If you could somehow do good works on your own, you might not need Christ. You need Christ. And if you're mad at me about this, you need Christ because you're getting mad at me. And this is what the Bible says. And I'm taunting you, and I need Christ. We all need Christ. Amen. A good tree, a good tree will produce good fruit because it's got good roots in the soil. That soil for the Christian is Christ. He's who produces the good work, the righteousness that we're seeing here. That takes us to our third point. Our third point. The abiding in Christ affects a behavior that leads to a confidence in Christ. So look with me. Now go back to verse 28, the second half of it. It says, So that when he appears... Now, the good thing is the ESV and probably other translations that you might have with you get that right. That the, ver- the word there in the Greek is if or when. If or when he appears. The correct translation is when he appears. There's no doubt Christ is coming back. The exact time of it, we don't know. But he is coming back. And that is a fact that we all live under. And for the Christian, the good news is this. Carl Truman says, The truth shall set you free, but first it will make you miserable. So the Christian has gone through that in the sense of realizing the truth that I'm a sinner. And I am destined to hell with no hope. I'm helpless and hopeless apart from Christ. I'm miserable about that. But then they find the truth that is salvation is Christ alone. So, because of that, John gives encouragement here, the confidence that is coming in Christ to the believer, not to shame or condemn him or her at that second coming. We are to have confidence at Christ's coming. And part of the way that John ties this together is just two simple words. The word for confidence... That he has there. We may have confidence. In the Greek, it's parousia. At his coming, coming is parousia. A little sounding the same intentionally in the Greek to tie those together, the coming and the confidence. And it's the only time he uses that word coming in this book. And what he's talking about with the second coming was, at that time, they would associate it one of two ways. The word meant either The coming of a God who shows his presence by miracles. Not that one. The coming of a king to his land. And that's what John is capturing. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming back to claim his own new heaven, new earth. He is coming back. And because of that, thinking through the end living with the end in mind, affects how we live today. How we live today. Recent recent uh, movie that came out and was only limited in, in, in how you could view it, but you could look up uh, this guy, Richard Mully. Fascinating story of how his vision for the future affected how he lived and lives today. So he grew up in Kenya. So if you've been on the mission field, and literally seen the huts and, and just the, the, the style of living. It is literally that. His father was the town drunk, beat, beat his mother over and over. One day he wakes up, and nobody's there. He's an orphan. He goes wandering around the village begging for food, and nobody will feed him. He finally makes it to a wealthy home by those standards, And they take him in and let him work in the field. And he does good work. So he has food to eat. He does good work. And they promote him to be a foreman of sorts. So he's able to buy his first set of clothes. Continues to work well. He actually is able to buy a car. He gets married. Has eight children. He takes that car and he travels around as kind of a Mully's taxi service. Taking people everywhere. Makes money. Now he's entrepreneurial. He's got a fleet of cars. Fleet of cars, get into auto insurance, get into home. He gets super rich, okay? And he gets even into oil and so forth. And so entrepreneurial, super wealthy. His children love just being in the home and, you know, having all this wealth, and they have great dinners together and so forth. But then the end affects him. God changes him. So that he sees the homeless on the street, and he says, this is not right. I'm going to take them in. So one night he comes home and tells the family, going to stop the working in the sense of making all the money. We're going to give the money. This is going to become an orphanage. The children say, whoa, Dad, we don't like that. We we like the stuff. (laughs) And so, sure enough, goes out. Gets a child from under this garbage, brings it home. Pretty soon they have a 100 children in the house, complete chaos. The children jumping on the beds and all this stuff. His own children feel a little bit neglected because, wait, you're caring for these children more than ours. But by the end, because of his vision of God working and what should be the case, he's got four or five of these big orphanages, that are essentially self-sustaining. They have gardens. They have all kinds of things going on. The children who go through the program, go off, get jobs, help to support as well, giving back to it. His own children now, all of them basically help to support, okay, uh, the, the, uh, the Mully Homes themselves. So just a wonderful, beautiful picture of him seeing here's the end and here's how it can affect how I'm living today. How he's living today. And what if we, what if we truly look to that day when the king will return with hope and not dread? What if instead of, 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 of anxiety about some illness or, or finances, not saying those aren't re- real, okay? Yes, they are real, but we focused on the Savior's love for us and the treasure of being in heaven with him forever and abide in that? What if instead of anger at the person who has wronged us, we focused on how we've been forgiven of our wrong and abide in that? And here is, in closing, the reason ultimately we can be confident in Christ So this illustration, you've you've likely heard at least some of it, but maybe not all of it. And it's simply this. For us, as we look forward to that day, that judgment day, you you could imagine a child, a homeless orphan. And that child, being desperate, goes and steals a jacket from a friend. And in stealing it, violently took it. Beat up the friend. So the jackets now get a bit of of blood on it. Okay? Stole that jacket. And then the child is caught. Has to appear before the perfect judge. Comes before that judge and realizes, whoa. I'm not just going to say, hey, judge, what's up? This is a perfect, holy, righteous judge. I stand condemned before him. And there at the judge's side is the attorney accusing the child, representing Satan. Satan, the father of lies, but this time he doesn't even have to lie. He says, look, this person's guilty. You can even see the blood on the jacket. You must condemn him. He's guilty. The judge, God, acknowledges he is guilty but lo and behold, standing in for the, son, for the child is the son. The defense attorney says, yes, this child has stolen. He is guilty. However, I will take his jacket, bear the guilt, the shame. I'll take his jacket. I give him my perfect white one. He stands now where the same holiness that condemned him now frees him. So the child goes to walk away. But as Paul Harvey says, there's more to the rest of the story. God the Father, the child was going to go away as an orphan. God the Father steps down, says, You are mine. I adopt you. I take you as my own, even though you will likely steal from me. You will likely lie to me. You are my child. This is the God who one day we will see. And because of what Christ has done, because of God the Father, because of his spirit working in and through us, We can have confidence in that day. Pray with me.